Join me in the reading of God's word. Ecclesiastes starting in chapter 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south, goes around to the north, and around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning. My name is Marco. I serve as a preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. It's a joy to be with you. So glad that you can hang out with us on this cool day. Uh, we're going to find ourselves, as you just listened to Nathaniel, uh, uh, we're going to find ourselves in Ecclesiastes, the first chapter, um, and that's in the Old Testament. Uh, got a couple of things for you. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11, and uh, as you do that, uh, as you open or load your Bible, uh, if you do not have a Bible, we want to hook you up. We love God's Word. We love preaching out of God's Word. Therefore, we love to gift God's Word. So if you do not have one, let that be our gift to you. Take one with you. In addition to that, if you are new, we'd love to connect, we'd love to hang out, we'd love to eat donuts with you and just see how you are doing. Fill out a connect card or come up to one of us after service, myself in particular, and we'll, we'll get something set up. Last thing, and I think you're going to see this on our video announcements later this morning, this Wednesday, so what, two, three days from now, we're going to be observing uh, Ash Wednesday. Uh, Ash Wednesday kind of kicks off this season known as Lent. We can talk about that another time. But I just want to personally invite you to our Ash Wednesday service. That's going to be happening on Wednesday at 6 p.m. at the Old Church Winery, which is right across the street from us here at the Incubator. Again, I'm sure you'll see more announcements on that. We have a lot of ground to cover. So let me begin by asking a very profound question. Are there any Pink Floyd fans? Some of the younger ones are like, who? Right? Like Pink Floyd, uh, I think, in their song, The Dark Side of the Moon, provides us with this wonderful summary of the book of Ecclesiastes, particularly if you've never read it. And uh, this is how the song goes. <clears throat> so you run and you run to catch up with the sun, but it's sinking racing around to come up behind you again. The sun is the same in a relative way, but you're older, shorter of breath, and one day closer to death. All right. It's a wonderful paraphrase, I suppose, of Ecclesiastes. This is the series that we're going to be starting uh, this morning, uh, and we're going to be in Ecclesiastes for the next several months. It is one of my favorite books of the Bible, in particular one of my favorite books in the Old Testament. Testament. Uh, there's a lot that can be said about Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is, in one way, the emo's guide to Jesus. 
if you know what an emo is. It is so melancholy and it comes across as a sad reality about life. And you got a glimpse of that as Nano Red verses 1 through 11. It has been said of Ecclesiastes that it was written on a Monday morning and more than likely by a philosophy major. It has something for everyone because it captures it captures the honesty of a person who knows God but is trying to search for the meaning of life. Ecclesiastes tries to answer the question, why does it all matter? Ecclesiastes addresses the hardship of life. That is, its frustrations and often its futility. It addresses the elusiveness of life. Just when you think you've got ahead, something happens. Just when you think you've, uh, uh, one of the phrases that we'll see in Ecclesiastes is chasing smoke. One of, the, one of the things is that, man, just when you think you finally caught the smoke, it vanishes. Just when you think you have it, you don't. It addresses the repetitiveness of life. Everything seems to be mundane, and why is it mundane? It addresses the reality of death. We're going to talk about that a lot, because that's in the book. But at the same time, Ecclesiastes teaches us that God is good in spite and in the middle of all of that. And as the author searches his heart as he will challenge us, the Spirit will challenge us to search ours, we will see that yes, indefinitely God is good and God does give us good gifts and he does lavish us with his grace. This is the graphic put together by uh, uh, Everett. He's up on the second floor, did an amazing job. This captures Ecclesiastes very well. Yeah, man, it's sick. Love it, right? It captures Ecclesiastes really well in the meaning of life or the search of life. So we have time in the sense that we are born and we spend time here on earth and then the skull representing death. And in between are the little finer good gifts that God gives us to enjoy. The question is, do we enjoy them? This book helps us to understand a a phrase that we're going to encounter regularly, and that is meaning of life under the sun. It helps us to understand the expectations of life. It forces us to confront that if our only hope is in this life, then it is a miserable existence. It's a good book for multiple generations. It's a good book because it confronts Uh, I suppose, idealism with realism and discouragement. (laughs) So if you are, for instance, uh, my generation, the the, the millennials, right? Uh, Very idealistic generation can be hard workers. And uh, when realism hits, it's not always fun. This book is is good for doubters and, and skeptics. That is, it's for those who don't know God but can't stop thinking about him. Ecclesiastes drives us to the gospel. It points us to the person, work, and need for Jesus. And so before we examine these 11 verses, I think it'll be good for us to consider two questions and then the application of said questions. So this is a lot. I'm going to try to go through this fairly quickly. The first question I want to address is, why study Ecclesiastes? That sounded, when Nathaniel read it, it sounded just depressing. Why study Ecclesiastes? Well, one of the reasons is because <clears throat> it's an honest view of the troubles of life. 
You see, the frustration and often futility that we face in toil and life often go unaddressed because we kind of don't like talking about it or it only builds up more frustration. And Ecclesiastes forces us to look at the troubles of life. One scholar writes it this way, Ecclesiastes allows believers to have the sad and skeptical thoughts that they would never allow to enter the front door of their faith. Ecclesiastes allows us to approach uh, God with some very, very honest questions. In addition to that, another reason is, uh, is that, is honest questions about the meaning of life, questions about life in a fallen world. You see, the author of Ecclesiastes will ask hard questions and is going to go to great lengths to answer those questions. And what's so good about this author, or what's so good about this book is that he is not satisfied with Sunday school answers concerning the meaning of life. In addition to that, he does not receive all the answers to those questions. You and I, as we encounter and confront some of these thoughts and questions, will realize that we will not get the answers to some of our questions. But at the very least, he is honest about them. Ecclesiastes will be a hard book, but it'll be good. Ecclesiastes provides us with this honest view of the goodness of God. You know, for all the doubts and the frequent frustrations that we encounter, the author teaches many good things about God. One of the things that we'll encounter is that he repeatedly comes back to the fear of God and the way in which he enjoys the good gifts of God is as a result of his obedience to God because of his relationship with God. Ecclesiastes helps us to have an honest understanding of the glory of God. We will see that the perspective of the author in the search for meaning is actually a very selfish endeavor. The author, uh, King Solomon, has enjoyed more pleasure and possessed more wisdom than anyone in the world and concludes that having it all almost killed him. And so it forces us to be honest about, man, how do we live or do we live in light of the glory of God? So that's, that's why we study or why we're going to study Ecclesiastes. The second question is, how do we study Ecclesiastes? Right. One of the ways that we study Ecclesiastes is by uh, seemingly approaching it with wisdom. We want to cultivate wisdom. Ecclesiastes is part of wisdom literature. And although figuring out the fundamental meaning of this book can be a challenge, at the end of the day, it is still God's word. It is living and active. It can cut us to the core, and it will cut us to the core of who we are. Therefore, we want to approach Ecclesiastes humble, hungry, and expectant. We study Ecclesiastes under one unified message. There will be times where this book will feel scattered and it'll just feel like this big jigsaw puzzle on the coffee table of our homes with some of the pieces on the floor and some of the pieces are still in the box and you're not really sure how to put it all together. But if we approach Ecclesiastes in humility, if we approach Ecclesiastes prayerfully and slowly, you will begin to see that once we start to focus and meditate on what's being said, there's going to be a clearer picture. Something will begin 
begin to emerge as we walk through Ecclesiastes. This book will teach us that if we approach the Lord in the midst of hard truths, troubles, and a fallen world, we can still receive the wonderful gift of joy, contentment, and grace through obedience. Finally, we, uh, the way in which we study Ecclesiastes is with the crucified and risen Christ in mind. In Luke 24, Jesus tells the disciples that everything written from the law of Moses to the prophets and the Psalms that includes Ecclesiastes bear witness about him. Everything in Scripture points to him. In this book, we will see Solomon wrestle and suffer with the vanity of life while living under the curse of thorns and thistles, frustrations and futility, toil and tears. But Jesus, our good God and Savior, who enters into human history, redeems us from this curse. And through his life, death and resurrection, he restores meaning to our toil. And in his return, he will execute justice. He will wipe away every tear and death will be no more. Finally, how do we apply the gospel in light of Ecclesiastes? These are three things that we're going to look at over the course of the next couple of months. One of which is one that we talked about a lot in our previous series, and that is the fear of God. That is that God is who he says he is, and we are not him. Solomon concludes it this way in Ecclesiastes 12, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Solomon forces us to confront the fear of God, or to apply gospel-centered hope through the fear of God. The second one would be to obey His commands. That we obey God not as robots, but as sons and daughters, because we have been reconciled to God through the finished work of Jesus. We apply gospel-centered hope in Ecclesiastes by enjoying God. See, the thing is, God gives us good gifts in the midst of toil, and frustration. You ever feel like when you're about to start something, or maybe if you are, let me say it this way, if you're in a rush, like this morning I was in a rush, and then all of a sudden, all of your frustrations, all of the things that get you annoyed become very, very clear, right? Now they're very apparent. And all I was thinking this morning was like, great, we're about to, I'm about to preach on like vanity and frustration and toil and everything is starting to come forward. Why God? Why right now? And we were in the office and Tony and I were talking and we're sharing about frustrations uh, within the morning. And then what ends up happening is that Alan here, who's to my right, comes up and he says, hey man, I brought you this breakfast sandwich. And I'm not kidding you, man. That seriously brought some joy to my heart. Like, it was this little good gift, and in that moment, I got to enjoy it. In that moment, I was thankful for my friend, thankful for the Lord uh, and what he's doing in our church. I was just like, man, praise God. And there's this, like, little meme on social media of this little boy eating a sandwich, and he's just, like, crying as he's enjoying it because it's so good. That's how my heart felt as I ate this egg sandwich. <laughs> That's exactly what it means to enjoy good gifts 
in the midst of toil and frustration. It's not that that frustration and futility didn't exist outside of that egg sandwich. It was for that moment, I simply got to enjoy God with my friends. So to conclude this introduction, (laughs) if the question is, how do we find the meaning of life under the sun? that's the question, then the answer must be that we live life under the sun through the sun, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So let us pray, and then we will dig in to our text. God, we praise you and we thank you for the gift of a morning that has been filled with new mercies. Lord, as a result, may our hearts be driven to Jesus to find comfort, grace, and even conviction. Lord, we praise you for Ecclesiastes. This is your word, which is not only living and active, but you tell us that it pierces beyond the marrow of our souls and discerns the intentions of our heart. May we come before you with honesty and humility May we come before you expectant. This morning, may your word be sweeter than the taste of honey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here we go. We're going to look at the first two verses, right? This part, I've just titled it. I think it's different on your notes if you found them online, but I changed a few things. Uh, Verses one and two, we're looking at that. Everything is vanity. And so here's how it opens up. The words of the preacher the son of David, king in Jerusalem. There's much discussion about this preacher person. Uh, and it's, the discussion is centered around whether or not this individual is really King Solomon. For the purpose of our time in this series, I will reference to Solomon. I believe that it is Solomon. Uh, and the way in which Ecclesiastes is kind of written in lieu of everything else he has written, like Song of Songs or Proverbs, you kind of see him travel throughout life. In Song of Songs, we learn about love. And we see him possibly uh, as a young man pursuing his wife, vibrant and in love. And then when we approach Proverbs, we see him as an older individual who is bestowing wisdom upon his children, giving them life lessons teaching them about responsibility, and so on. And then once we get to Ecclesiastes, uh, one pastor has said it this way, that Ecclesiastes is his letter of repentance. If you're familiar with Solomon at all, he is King David's son. God approaches him. This is in 1 Kings 11, I believe. God approaches him. Asks him, man, what is it that you desire? Gets that one question, the one question all of us wish we got. Man, if God would just ask me, right? And so Solomon gets it, right? What would you want? He says, wisdom, to, to lead my people, to discern your ways, wisdom. And God grants him wisdom. And so we see Solomon expand the kingdom. We see Solomon serve God. And then in the midst of his life, things begin to change. And once we get to about uh, 1 Kings 11, we begin to see that he begins to compromise, not just in his faith, but he compromises on belief. He compromises uh, in, in marrying other individuals of other religions with other beliefs, and it begins to worship them in light of all of those things and begins to say, well, the purpose of this was for political unity. But in so doing, he just dives deeper and deeper and deeper into his sin. And 
as we walk through Ecclesiastes, he will tell us about some of these things. He will tell us that he is the one that sought all of the pleasures that you think you want, that you wish you had. He will say, I did it. I did it all times 10. And so Ecclesiastes can be viewed as this reality of, I've had it all and it almost killed me. So I'm going to leave you with this. Additionally, the word preacher here in this first verse, it's a Hebraic word, and it can find its meaning in the word to assemble, or the phrase to assemble. In other words, what he is doing is he's gathering everyone together, kind of like we're doing right now in a church service, and he's going to begin to preach wisdom to those in attendance. So once more, for the purpose of our time, we will reference to this individual as King Solomon. And then we get to verse 2. If you've spent any time in Ecclesiastes, if you've ever joked about Ecclesiastes, if you've ever mocked Ecclesiastes, this is the verse everyone always mocks. Everyone always laughs at when things are just getting really frustrating, when you've had that day that it's just, it stinks, right? This is what you would quote. Verse two, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, some of your translations may, something, may say something a little, a little different. We'll talk about that in a minute. But this word vanity is used about 38 times in this book. It's also a Hebraic word. This whole thing is in Hebrew, but it's a Hebraic word uh, for hevel. H-E-B-E-L. The B is pronounced like a V. Right? Hevel. And it's been translated in numerous ways. You may have heard of some of these uh, in the past or even in your Bible translations. Words like meaningless. Meaningless, meaningless, it's all meaningless. Or maybe futile. Right? It's all futile. Everything is futile. Or striving after the wind. I don't want to repeat that. Right? Striving after the wind. And those aren't bad translations necessarily. Like, so don't, I'm not knocking that, right? <clears throat> but they could give a wrong impression. For instance, to say that everything is meaningless contradicts part of the book. Because Solomon says that there are some things that are meaningful in this life. So vanity, or this word hevel, can be better translated as a breath or breeze. Solomon is saying that everything, our life, is a mist. It's vapor. It's a smoke. It, or it's smoke. It's here one day, gone the next. And this isn't something that he's just looking at it morbidly. We see this even in the Psalms, right? I don't think this is on your notes. You can just listen. This is Psalm 144. Uh, verses 3 and 4, the writer says, <clears throat> O Lord, what is man that you regard him? Or the son of man that you think of him? Here it is. Man is like a breath. Man is like hevel. Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. So we see this word in other contexts of Scripture. It's not just unique to Ecclesiastes. But nevertheless, what Solomon is getting to is that, and this is something by Philip Ryken, he goes on to say, not one single aspect of our existence and therefore not one single thing that will happen to us today is free from being frustrated by futility. In short, Solomon is making a case that life, our time here on this earth, is short. Life is elusive. He will eventually make the case, and in a much more emo and honest way, he will actually make the same case to a degree that the great prophet Ferris Bueller did, made. <laughs> and he goes on to say, 
life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. Solomon will address that but in a much more emo and biblical way. The vanity of life, here's the thing. The vanity of life, the hevel of life, forces us to confront the purpose of life. So, let's move into our section. This is verses 3 through 10. In verses 3 through 10, we're going to move into essentially Solomon's argument for vanity. So he just made this big statement, vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. Let me show you just how much vanity exists. And he's going to do so by observing and working through three areas that we all share. Work, time, and creation. Again, he's making this case for vanity. So let's begin with work. This is verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? He sounds so pessimistic. Let's fast forward to verses 9 and 10. He goes on to say, What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new? It has already. It has been already in the ages before us. So he's tackling work, and he sounds so pessimistic, but in reality, the question really is, what is there that is actually new? What is there that is actually new in the midst of our toil, our work, and our ambition? You work really, really hard. For instance, for many people, they work very hard. They work uh, long hours, and their work, your work, let me make it personal, your work may be profitable. It might even lead to wealth, but the cost was sleepless nights. For others, for instance, your work may be profitable and you're doing all of the things, but it's motivated by greed and envy. Nothing is new, even when we think it is. Nothing is new. Especially when it comes to our current reality. Everything is digital, right? We want to explore things. We want to continue to grow in things. We want to work hard towards those things. And what Solomon is saying is, hey, I love, I love the energy. I love what you're doing. That's cool you got an iPad. Is it really new? Civilizations and societies have been growing in communication for all time. Cool, you've worked really hard to obtain that pen. Does it really matter? One author says it this way, the newest is relative to the age in which we live. But when viewed against the backdrop of human history, the novelty fades. And so we work and we work and we work. And the question is, what's the point of work? Elsewhere in the book, he goes on to ask more pointed questions about work. He goes on to say, so you work, you work, you work. And what if, what happens when you don't get a return on your investment? What happens when teachers, you're just investing, 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 and pouring into your students and they just don't care or respond? friendships that you work on, actual careers that you pursue and you're pursuing them, pursuing them, applying for the jobs, doing all of the things necessary in order to get ahead, to climb the, as one coach once told me, the ladder of success. And then you continue to run into these frustrations and futilities and toil and you don't get the promotion and you actually take four steps back. What is the point? 
That is what Solomon is saying in the context of work. He addresses time. This is verses 4 and 8. Beginning in verse 4, he says, A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. He writes about the generations that live and occupy the earth. That's all of us here that live and occupy the earth at the same time. He concludes in irony. The irony is that the earth was made for the benefit of man, but in the end, it is the earth that endures and man crumbles. Man goes back to dust. This is kind of a hard reality, but it, it's something that we need to confront. In verse 8, he continues, All things are full, this is so sad. Anyway, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. In light of everything that we experience and explore and discover, we're never satisfied. For a moment, consider technology. It's almost like I'm a rip on technology. I'm not, but just consider technology for a moment, particularly if you find yourself on social media. You're never satisfied. That's why there are memes about scrolling through. That's why everybody's curious about the feed, right? Everybody's like, oh, what's the update? What are the stories on Instagram? Who just posted on Snapchat? Who wrote the longest political post on Facebook? Check this out. And it's this feed that you're constantly scrolling through, but you're actually never satisfied. That's just technology. What if if you get the thing that you actually want to get? The, the career, the marriage, the life, the family, and you get there and Solomon is saying, you're actually not satisfied when you get it. Something else that you want on top of that. There's something you want in addition to that. There's something new that you want to pursue within it. You're actually not satisfied. But the idea here is, that's just the way it's always been. You're going to return to dust anyway. The earth is going to be here and you're not. The next one is Creation. This is verses 5 through 7. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. So here he's appealing to creation. We've looked at work briefly. We've looked at time. And if I'm going fast through these, it's because these are going to be themes that he's going to be continue to revisit in our time. Nevertheless, he appeals to us through creation. Speaking of the sun, the winds, and the sea. See, these hard-working forces all seem very busy, and they are certainly intricate. They are unique because of their impressiveness, because the sea is not full, even though streams full in it. That's, that's amazing. The sun provides light. It does all these things, right? But what he's saying is they can look as though they're doing something new every day, but upon closer consideration and examination, they're mundane. They're mundane, and in reality, they just do the same thing every day. Fine, the wind, he goes on to say, the wind blows to the south, and you think something new is going to happen. Nope, comes from the north. (laughs) The sun rises, you're like, yeah, look at the sun, it's going to set anyway. This guy's like the most pessimistic and cynical individual ever. Right? But that's what he's saying. There's nothing new. What is the purpose? Though the vanity of life exists, one must consider its consequences 
of living under the sun. Solomon concludes, this is verse 11. He writes, There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after. Have you ever gone to like your old high school and no one cares? <laughs> right? Maybe you did some really cool things in high school, right? I got, I got the, the most unique thing when I was in high school. I don't know what that means, but nobody knows because nobody cares. That's what Solomon is getting at. You're not going to be remembered. He concludes that nothing or no one will be remembered. Today's celebrities are tomorrow's obituaries. This reality, this reality scares many people. It scares many people because, or it may scare you because perhaps you don't like looking at this kind of realism. Some of you are like, I live in that realism. Right? Some of you don't like looking at it. But the truth is, to some degree, we all want to be remembered. For instance, when you get a promotion at work, you want to call someone. Some of you might even post it on social media. There is, to some degree, some desire for you to be remembered. Posting on social media. Right? Finding friends on social media. Looking through social networks. Watching the kind of TV that we end up watching. So that we can learn what would it look like to be remembered even to the degree of making poor decisions, even really good decisions. Some of those decisions are made for the purpose of being remembered. How will I be remembered when I make this decision? You know, there's always that thing like, oh man, only, you always remember the, the bad decisions or someone only remembers the bad decisions you ever made, right? There is this little crevice in our hearts that's like, yeah, but you remember though, right? <laughs> At least you remember. To some degree, we all want to be remembered. And a pessimistic outlook like this can lead to three false ways of living. And I say false because they can destroy a person. And sadly and tragically, these ways in which people try to walk through life under the sun are alive and well. And this may be your story. So here are three false ways in which people will take an outlook like Solomon's. They will not disagree but then they will live this way. The first one is, in some of these words, they're just fancy, but you pretty much know them. The first one is escapism. You want to escape reality. You want to disconnect from being present. And oftentimes, um, oftentimes when it comes to escapism, lately it tends to be through digital means, right? Whether it's video games or getting online or whatever. But the truth is, it's not just digital platforms, People can escape or desire to escape reality through even really, really, really good things like family, football games. There was a couple weeks ago, uh, what, the Cowboys, they were playing, they lost, which is nothing new, right? So they lost, uh, <laughs> and so they, they lost, and uh, one of the guys comes to me a couple days later and, and just confesses how angry he got because they weren't running the correct plays, I suppose. Um, and the idea here is for in that moment, like he escaped reality 
and didn't want to touch reality and just wanted to be there. Not just present, but engulfed, encompassed, identified with this game. And when it didn't go the way he anticipated it did, it wrecked his world for 15 minutes. Everybody's like, ha ha, what a loser. You do that too. It might not be with football. It might not be video games. It may be hobbies. It may be family time. It may be these things that you actually pursue, but they are under the banner of the category good. But in reality, you're using them as a way to escape, to not confront the reality of life, to not confront maybe even some of the frustrations. Secondly, is nihilism. Essentially what this teaches is that life has no objective meaning or value. Right? This is like a philosophy major's dream. Um, Leo Tolstoy writes this, is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? It's just sad. But the idea here is that people live life in, in view of there is no purpose, there is no meaning, and people would say like, oh, well, those are atheists. Not necessarily. A third one is hedonism. Hedonism basically means, hey man, live it up. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. Let's do it. Let's do all of the things. Let's pursue all of the pleasures. YOLO. And so we're going to pursue this life. We're going to do all the things. We're going to say yes to everything. No is a bad word. Let's just do it. And these are three ways in which people begin to, or these are three ways in which people can live life through escapism, nihilism, hedonism. Do you find yourself in any of these? So how do we live meaningfully under the sun then? See, what is common about these three ways of living, escapism, nihilism, and hedonism, is that they are all rooted in human wisdom. They are all rooted in the individual's understanding alone. And so how do we live meaningfully under the sun? We abandon human wisdom and seek the kingdom first. We seek the kingdom. Secondly, we cultivate wisdom. We just had a seven-week series primarily centered on cultivating wisdom. The fear of God searching the Scriptures, immersing ourselves in the Scriptures, communing with God, and then counsel. And how do we live meaningfully? We enjoy the good gifts from God in this life, like that egg sandwich. Like you, It's funny, right? But I'm not knocking it. You've had those moments where it just seems so not special, but it's very special. That's exactly what it means to enjoy it. Even if it's for that moment, enjoy it. You're with your friends, enjoy it. Enjoy this gift from God at this moment right now. We live life under the sun by living through the sun. The beauty of all of this, I hope like, man, we were singing... Is he like y'all were doing some amazing songs and like, you know, just worship and then it's like everything's vanity, right? It's just the beauty of all of this. We're going to find it, I promise, right? And I get it. Ecclesi- again, again, Ecclesiastes is going to be a difficult book. 
A lot of people have said difficult books, right? Or a lot of people have said stuff about this. Martin Luther, the reformer, Marty Loons, he goes on to say about Ecclesiastes, he says, this is one of the most hard, this is one of the hardest books in the Bible. No one can master it. Other people have said, man, this is the book that is the absolute most confusing book in the Bible. But we are going to figure it out, okay? The beauty of all of this is that while Ecclesiastes may provide us with a hard and honest word, the beauty is it's not the last word. This is not where the story of redemption ends. But rather, Ecclesiastes points us to the person and work of Jesus. Solomon argues that your work, your toil, your ambition will amount to nothing. It changes nothing. Yet Jesus' work changed everything. See, Jesus enters into human history and lives life under the Son in obedience to the Father, fulfilling the law, proclaiming the Gospel, seeking the Kingdom. He was all about His Father's business. Solomon argues that there is nothing new, yet Christ's work is all new. While it seems as though nothing will be new, Jesus' work makes all things new through his, de- through his death and his resurrection. Consider that for a moment because the question might be, what exactly does that mean? Jesus gives us a new covenant that we can have access to God the Father through Jesus reconciling us to Him. Jesus breathes new life in us through the Holy Spirit. We go from spiritual death to spiritual life. That we are given a new heart. This was something that even Ezekiel looked to, that where God says, I will take your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you. The Christian is a new creation. Paul tells that to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Behold, the old is gone and the new is here. You are a new creation. Revelation 21 speaks that Jesus will create a new heaven and a new earth. All of Jesus' work is new. Solomon argues that you will not be remembered, that nothing we do will be remembered, but Jesus' work will be and is remembered. We see this, for instance, in the church. Jesus tells us in Matthew 16 that the church will prevail. Hell cannot stop her because of Jesus. Jesus' work will be remembered through the Lord's Supper. We do this every Sunday where we remember the words and work of Jesus for us as sinners. That when we take the bread and the wine, we're not just taking these elements, but we remember specifically his substitutionary death in our place for our sin so that we might be made new through Jesus. Jesus' work mattered. And Christian, you are a new creation, which means your work matters. Your work is not in vain. And as a result, you can glorify God as a result of an empowered and renewed heart. 
You do not have to live with work feeling meaningless. A life in and through Jesus Christ does not simply give us meaning. It provides us with hope that this life isn't it. It doesn't end here. The hope that Jesus gives us is a matter of eternity to encourage present realities. All of the longings that we experience is because we groan for the new. All of the things that we long for is because we are groaning. Those groanings, those longings, they're not random. You were made for a new and better world. And the very fact that you are weary of this life or have experienced that points you to Jesus as the only one who can satisfy your soul. So as we close, today, let us consider Jesus. May Ecclesiastes point us to Jesus. Let us take a hard look at life, but embrace the one who is faithful and true. May we live life under the sun by living life through the sun. And so Christian, let me ask you, are you weary of living under the sun? Are you weary of living under the sun? Let me encourage you, let me invite you, come with confidence before the Lord with your toil, with your tears, with your frustrations, and with your doubt. I promise you Jesus can handle it. And it is by His grace that you are not simply forgiven, you have been made new. In a time where Solomon says nothing is new, Jesus says, behold, I have made things new. You, Christian, are a living hope of life under the sun through the sun. And if you're not a Christian, I love that you're here. Thank you for joining us. And I'll ask you the same question. Are you weary of living under the sun? This meaning of living under the sun, Solomon is ultimately examining at life apart from God. Are you weary of living under the sun? You see, the longings that you have and sense are not random. They are for something more. As we will see in the coming weeks, it is this search and hunger for Eden. The longings that you have and sense are not random. Yet Jesus is the only one who can satisfy your deepest need. Church, as we close... May we live life under the sun by living through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, by Your Spirit, would You humble us to come before You with great honesty, Honesty in a uh, a few ways. First, coming before you and confronting some of the realities that Solomon addresses. Confronting some of these realities that we don't want to confront, that we don't want to talk about, and we don't want to think about.
So Lord, may you humble us so that we would approach you honestly. Lord, would you humble us so that as we approach you honestly, we share what is on our hearts. We share our toils. We share our tears. Lord, may we share our frustrations and doubt. As we consider the church, Lord, I, I don't know that we would say that when it comes to our frustration and our doubt, some would argue that maybe this isn't the safest place for that, therefore I'm going to keep it to myself. God, would you humble them so that they would come before you with honesty? Lord, would you strengthen us by your Spirit on dark days, in doubting days, and on joyful days. Lord, by your grace, would you lead us? Would you lead us to confess our hearts before you this morning, right now? Even if what we're going to mutter is just, this is hard, Jesus. I knew it would be hard. I just didn't think it would be this hard. Jesus, would you, would you bless my friends with the spirit of your grace through comfort, through conviction, through encouragement, May you strengthen, may you strengthen our hearts this morning, not just so that we would survive another day, but so that we would find our meaning and our hope in you, Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen.